Hi, Kirk. Hi, Serge. Great to see you. Yeah, same here. Same here. And so, um, you know, today we're going to be talking about anxiety and how we handle the many dimensions of our anxiety. Yes. Well, that that is the core of my study of late and my book. Yeah. Enhancing anxiety. So I, I guess you're leaving that open as a, a question. Well, I could either I mean maybe the 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 concept is really that sense of how um we tend to run away from anxiety as something undesirable. And your approach is actually by doing that, we throw the baby with the bathwater. And yes. um well. Yeah, I think so much of it really goes back to our, our primal encounter with anxiety. Uh, and even more than that, our encounter with difference, that which is different from us. Uh, differences between ourselves and other people, uh, between ourselves and other places, other things, and even differences in ourselves that come up at, at the point of birth, actually. I, I'm very uh, sympathetic with uh, Otto Rank's idea of uh, the trauma of birth. Although I wouldn't call it the trauma of birth, I would call it the drama of birth because I don't think it's just trauma, shock and, and terror. I, I think that's a big part of what happens when we move from a place of relative non-being and unity to sudden abrupt being and pandemonium. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I do think that that uh, kind of sets the template for future anxiety, trauma, etc. And uh, that has so much to do with, as Rank so well puts it, the psychology of difference. There is such a radical difference that happens in that birth process and being thrown into the radically unknown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the context essentially is that our mind is equipped to deal with unity or simplicity. Yes. And when we introduce complexity, yes. then we introduce anxiety because that's something that's not immediately obvious to our yes. mind to handle. Right, right. I mean, we're we're basically in a passive receptive mode, and then suddenly we're we're thrown into this this wildness and lack of control without any equipment. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to learn the equipment, learn how to work with it. Uh, so difference is is a huge challenge. And I don't think we're often very good at uh, supporting this uh, this radical encounter with otherness and with difference, either in the parental uh, matrix, if you will, or the culture that that surrounds the parents. We 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 come at difference too often with fear sometimes carried over generation after generation and even subconscious fears of yeah. that which is different, that which is other. And so 
in a way, from having that the beginning, you mentioned how it starts at birth. Uh, and so that sense of difference is not an intellectual construct. It's not, you know, oh, this is different. Uh, but difference is the experience of being shot into a world that you can no longer make sense of. Yes, yes. So it's very much a whole body experience. And I, I call it a sense of of helplessness and groundlessness mm -hmm. we experience from the get-go. Uh, it, it, there's a real floundering there, coupled with an a growing element of wonder and discovery also. And that's why I call it a drama of mirth. It's mm -hmm. just trauma because... Uh, my sense of birth, you know, it's hard to remember exactly, but uh, it was reinforced by actually witnessing the birth of my son. I was right there as part of the delivery of him is, you know, he was like shocked and jarred at first, <laughs> stunned, uh, seemed overwhelmed by, by the difference of what he was thrown into. But very soon after that, there was like a looking around. <laughs> And a curiosity, you know, and uh, I think that's really kind of the crucible that we're dealing with here. How do we help people to to come into that place of more curiosity, <clears throat> intrigue, discovery, uh, as distinct from? you know, doing everything we can to avoid that which is other and different, and and thereby, unfortunately, living often a, a fairly narrow life or a, a superficial life or a very destructive life because we're so frustrated by feeling so helpless and groundless that we have to pump ourselves up and make ourselves... Uh, you know, great, quote unquote, in some way, uh, actually often ends up ends up more like tyrannical or devaluing of other people. Mm -hmm. Just so we can avoid that primal sense of groundlessness and helplessness, because we have not really been met and supported. I want that. to maybe invite you to stay a little longer with that experience of groundlessness. Uh, sure. So that it's not abstract, and yes. in some ways, you know, it 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 ev evokes for me the notion of, of emptiness in Buddhism, but the notion of emptiness is not, you know, necessarily emptiness how we understand it, but is the fact that nothing exists in and of itself, and uh, your groundlessness. You have an image uh, that you mentioned from Madman. That <laughs> yes, that's that's right. Well, yeah, Madman and uh, Hitchcock's Vertigo, mm -hmm. where, where the protagonist is uh, spiraling in midair, spiraling into the void. <laughs> um, in Madman, it's the protagonist played by John Hamm at the beginning in the credits. I mean, you see a silhouette of him. You know, so almost cartoon-like. But what, what you see is a, a male figure uh, like in a free fall, spiraling into, we don't know what, into the void. But he's, he's he has a, 
total lack of control in that spiraling process. And of course that conjures up all kinds of images and projections and possibilities, but it's so reflective of that, that guy's struggle. It's a very existential struggle in that program, I believe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Between the illusion of power and control, which is all about him in the advertising business, and and even in much of his life at that time, you know, through having a lot of women and being sort of a, a cool a cool cat, but underneath he's just he's just terrified, and he's just floundering, you know, in that unknown. And, and attempting to, in some way, address that through the series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that experience of groundlessness is uh, throughout his life, he tries to avoid it and finds ways yeah. in which he seems to have control. But yeah, then it right. comes up. And when it comes up, uh, it's not just a concept. It's so terrifying that, you know, it's just that essentially that free fall. Yes. He's searching for an identity in a sense, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very clearly lacks an identity in many ways in that story. But, or he holds on to pseudo-identities that, that aren't really rooted in what deeply matters to him. And that's a lot of what we're talking about, too. It's yeah, yeah. And so to play to play devil's advocate, you know, taking his role, uh, he'd turn to you and say, well, why would I, you know, uh, welcome the anxiety? Why don't I just try to hang on more firmly to my, what you call my pseudo identity? You know, who would want, you know, to 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 get in free fall like that? That's the, the question I have to respond to all the time. Why, why should I have to struggle with that anxiety and that free fall when I have all these instant answers, you know, whether it's it's sex or drugs or, uh, you know, an ideology I can cling to. Simple answer. Mm-hmm. My, my response is that, well, how do you want to live your life? How is that working out for you? <laughs> you know, and, and clearly on the show, it's not working too well. I mean, at the surface level, yeah, he's he's a handsome guy. He's doing great, you know, with women and his, his status in the Madison Avenue world. But underneath, is he really living the kind of life he, he wants to lead? I, I I don't think so. So this gets to the question of are people willing to do the inner work necessary to live a a fuller, more gratifying life in the long term, not just, you know, in the, in the short term with, with quick fixes, which our society is just, you know, riven with. Uh, that's that's a, that's not an easy challenge for people to uh, yeah. accept that it takes some inner work to, to begin to come to terms with that, that, terror of that which is other and radically unknown mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but so in doing that there is um uh we we shift the terrain from you know the the in one on the one hand you know the question is well why would i have the terror am i not better if i avoid the terror right and then the answer is but long term you're better off 
once you have confronted it? I would say long term and also in terms of your whole body experience of living. Mm -hmm. if, if your whole body is not connected with where you're going in your life, you know, what kind of a life is it? Um, maybe it's a, a, a very partial life. Again, you're doing well on the surfaces, but uh, are you really leading the kind of life you want to live? And, and do you feel the freedom to really explore that? That's part of the problem here, too, is if you're if you're doing everything you can to avoid the anxiety of uncomfortable ideas, uncomfortable conversations, uncomfortable relationships, are you able to really explore, let alone pursue, what deeply matters to you? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And maybe... You know, of course, you and I agree on the value of confronting the anxiety. And you and I agree that um, finding good therapy is certainly one way to do that, not necessarily the only way or not necessarily right. sufficient by itself, but certainly a very good avenue. Yes. Um, uh, so, yes, we we obviously have a bias there. We, we have an opinion there. Uh, experience. experience <laughs> yes. No. I've had direct experience with it. It, it helped. It saved my life, I feel. But my maybe energy. coming back to that experience, that sense of it's not just, you know, and, and actually I like the fact that you, you mentioned your direct experience. This is not just, uh, but it was not a place of you uh, saying, I took myself up by my bootstraps and did it. But it was you being lucky enough to have the right help and support that was both uh, competent uh, yes. and available. Yes, that's that's extremely right, uh, and I I am I've been extremely blessed to have had that support. Uh, both psychologically minded parents, even though they were very understandably shattered after the trauma of the death of my brother, and, and I was very young, um, but uh, still very psychologically minded and had the wherewithal to send me to a child analyst, who I describe in the book, uh, who presented a model for me of somebody who seemed to have really been through a lot in his life, very seasoned, and yet here he was, he survived. And not only survived, but but thrived. I mean, he was a whole person in in my very young mind in experiencing him. Um, but he was definitely a model, and and that helped me internalize a different relationship to myself, because the relationship that I went into that analysis with was was very. Uh, overwhelming it, it was uh life denying anxiety not life enhancing uh, and by the way what i mean by life enhancing anxiety is the capacity to live with and make the best of the depth and mystery of existence 
Mm-hmm. So I was horrified by the depth and mystery of existence. And I had all kinds of ways of uh, defending against it with rages and withdrawals and, um, you know, just night night terrors that kept me basically paralyzed in a lot of ways. Um, and so uh, I, I think so much of the healing had to do with my absorption of his modeling and holding uh, the, the, the most radical ranges of, of my thoughts, feelings, sensations, fantasies, um, and, and, and internalizing that. So I, I was in effect internalizing a much more supportive and centered relationship. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's my anxiety. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, you know, you're talking, we're talking about the, the depth of and mystery of existence. Yes. To the child you were then, um, you know, even if you could understand fancy words like depth and mystery of existence, right. um, this was nothing like your experience. Right. That's uh, right. And so what was crucial was to have somebody who was the embodiment of having faced it yes yes and would be able to say you know i'm with you and we're gonna get through it and there's something to hope for yes right right gave me hope too and a permission to to range within or roam within Mm-hmm. which I, I didn't feel at all. Again, I was basically in a state of overwhelm and paralysis. Yeah, yeah. And Scared. so we're talking about trauma. And as you pointed out, you know, it's not necessarily that trauma is condemned to state trauma, but it can be drama from which once you digest it, you know, mm-hmm. something more evolve. And so we can call it, resilience or we can call it ability to stay with the depth and mystery of existence or eventually the the cultivation of the sense of awe toward living the humility and wonder yeah the capacity to be with our vulnerable with my vulnerable parts if you will as well as incremental risk-taking and venturing out risking with him, with my analyst in our relationship, risking by identifying feelings, by exploring feelings. All of that was was part of that uh, expansion that, that I, I think you're talking about the uh, yeah, yeah yeah. so you mentioned you mentioned the notion of all and uh uh so all is something that falls within the sphere of spirituality and yeah. we as therapists often shy away from there because spirituality evokes something that uh might be more like dogma might be more like a belief system uh might seem like it's infringing on um on what our clients might do and you're 
championing the notion of awe and spirituality as yes. something that's a function of, of being human. Yes, yes. And I would distinguish between spirituality and religion. I think religion comes more with that loading of, of dogma, of codification, absolutisms, where spirituality, I believe, is, is more open, open-ended. I mean, the spirituality that I embrace, I, I you know, describe in the book, is what I call enchanted agnosticism. <laughs> I love that phrase. You know, the phrase I use is uh, thinking about I'm an agnostic mystic or, you know, uh -huh. so th that same yeah. Um, yeah. that same dichotomy, but that enriches each other while breaking away from the original notion of spirituality. Yeah, well, I, I think it's the best of spirituality. It's the best of religiosity, in my view. Is that the, All the great religions point to that, you know, to be able to um, feel like you're participating in something much greater than yourself uh, and thereby be lifted by that larger identification uh, is one of the greatest feelings one can have i think uh, and it 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 also but but it's especially a great feeling if one can have an inner freedom around that to uh to reflect deeply and from one's core sense uh what deeply matters about my life and and the lives that 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 are around <laughs> that surround me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, it enables one to to come at those bigger questions uh, with a greater ability to um, well to to feel that that one can can deal with with those questions rather than being in a panic about it and resorting to something you know a quick fix kind of thing yeah whether that's a certain notion of god let's say or uh, something from scripture that again may be useful but is is uh, sought after more by panic and fear than by pausefulness and deliberation with one's whole body experience yeah yeah so so the paradigm we're talking about is the paradigm of having a role model a mentor yeah. somebody yes. uh, who would embody the possibility of staying with that frightening groundlessness yes is that mystery um, yes. but see the possibility of containing it yes right so that containing it and staying with it allows for something to emerge and 
we're talking about growth, not as some kind of a cliche of, oh, you do this, you do therapy, you do personal growth, but yeah. growth that comes from handling that complexity. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's it's growth without a, a an external blueprint. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's a, a blueprint that comes from our own inner searching, our own uh, grappling with how to how best to live. And I, I think that's bound to bring up questions about about ethics, about living collectively, not just individually. Mm -hmm. um, because the more consciousness, the more you're conscious of other other people as well and and of of the pain and and, and challenge of living in the world. Yeah, yeah. So that's a very different image from, say, the stereotype of, uh, oh, if you pay attention to your inner experience, um, you're diving into a well of just a deeper and deeper into yourself and cut off from the world. But what you're talking about is, you know, realizing that something larger, the larger world means dealing with the interaction. Yes, and it, and it means recognizing the the preciousness of, of life. Um, the, the, the amazement that we're, we're here. Mm -hmm. And just, just even beginning with that, uh, you don't want to degrade yourself or others or degrade the experience or, or skim, skim the surface of it generally. I think you, you know, it really prompts you to want to seize it, seize life, and um, attempt to live the best life you can, to celebrate life as much as you can. Yeah, and so this is where there is a meeting point with the notions of positive psychology and happiness but also a divergence because mm -hmm. you're talking about uh, you know, what is what makes a good life in a much larger uh, sense yeah. than just necessarily the conventional meaning of being happy. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm really talking about an ability to recognize uh, well, the whole question of what what is deeply moving to one it seems to me it's hard to be deeply moved by something unless there is a specter of of death, anxiety, uh, great humility about our vulnerability before the vastness of creation. And uh, this is, I mean, I think that's what brings up the, the poignancy of, of life, of, of whether it's in a, a relationship with somebody, a, a project, um, ideas. Mm 
one of my concerns with some of the recent writings about uh, positive psychology and even longer term writings, but but even some of the the work on awe coming from that positive psychology standpoint is that <clears throat> they seem to want to separate the sense of awe, uh, which they would equate maybe maybe more with with wonder and joy of living, completely separated from uh, the trembling elements of living, the uh, the unsettling, the uncomfortable. Uh, even in, uh, for example, Dr. Keltner's recent book on awe, mm -hmm. very explicitly places the themes of fear and horror and anxiety and death completely separate from what he characterizes as a sense of awe, based on statistical surveys of people describing their sense of awe, quantitative experimental research. And I think that's part of the problem is they're not digging deep enough. They're not reflecting the entire literary, artistic, and in many ways spiritual traditions that acknowledge the tragic dimension of living as integral to living a fuller, more vital life. Yeah, yeah. So what comes to mind? Yeah, what comes right. to mind? When you talk about this is uh, the idea of an amateur mechanic who uh, uh, takes, you know, pieces by piece uh, uh, his engine and then puts it back together and say, "Oh, look, there's five pieces that are absolutely unnecessary," and uh, you know, and so you're a seasoned mechanic and you look at it and say, "Well, if they were put here, you know, you're going to have a problem at some point." If you remove them, uh -huh. right, right. You take a, you know, life and and humanity, and you remove some essential components, but we could probably live without it. It's not complete. <laughs> it's not a fuller experience. I mean, we we can also go back to Rudolf Otto, the idea of the holy. I mean, the, the core religious experience for him is the mysterium tremendum and the fascinating. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's that's the beginning. That's the core of the seed. He calls that the numinous, right? Um, but but it starts with a shaking and a quailing before the, the vastness of existence. And that's integral yeah. to the fuller experience of that existence. Yeah. Along with the fascinating, you begin to wonder, be curious about it, discover, and cre be creative within it. But it comes with the, the trembling and the humility mm -hmm. uh, that, that are so integral to being moved by this life. And I want to to bring that, you know, to to attach, to to connect that vision, that mystical vision, if you want to the very down-to-earth experience of yeah. what we and people can experience in therapy. Uh, and I want to quote something that you were saying a bit earlier. And you're talking about having both the experience of vulnerability and the experience of being part of something larger. 
and yeah. uh, and 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 that you know uh, and so it's not one or the other uh, and the two really feed into each other and 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 that's what the experience is you cannot reduce it to just one side or the other they go hand in hand they do because all the so-called dysphoric or negative feelings are paradoxical they they are openings to new sensitivities and 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 ways of feeling and thinking about oneself and the world as well as they can be prisons and, and closings mm -hmm. of our lives uh you know you just take take fear or depression itself i mean certainly that can be crippling and overwhelming but also if it's stayed with and worked with it can also bring up new sensitivities toward oneself toward others that one didn't have before maybe a maybe a recognition of the preciousness of, of life or of a certain relationship you had uh, can deepen one's feelings of love, perhaps, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as one is so affected by the relationship. Yeah. So, yes, I'm very much with, with what you're saying. I think good depth experiential therapy is, is really the staging grounds for cultivating a sense of awe toward living because we're we're shifting back and forth between abject terror and paralysis often to gradual incremental intrigue uh even if that intrigue has to do with uh seeing something new by expressing your your despair or your anger with your therapist let's say so gradual intrigue, curiosity, and hopefully, eventually, fascination and a whole new path toward living. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> including the possibility crazy. of including the possibility of taking risks. Yes, uh, and I'm not talking about major risk necessarily. It could be little yeah. risk in experimenting, so that the there is the possibility of experiencing at the same time the terror, That's but right. also the possibility of taking risk and having a chance to see something emerge. That's right. I mean, I, th I think it's similar to how our eyes gradually can adjust to the, the, the threatening, uh, strange experience of being in, let's say, a dark basement. Mm. And, and there are objects jutting out and they they, they seem terrifying. They're, they're like monsters or, or they're going to pierce us or, you know, or, or we're going to be in that free fall we were talking about before. We're going to suddenly step into, a, into an abyss <laughs> and be lost. But as if we can stay with it, if we can feel these objects in the basement, we begin to see, oh, oh that's, yes, that's that wonderful ski pole that I had, right? That I had such a great time with and, you know, Mount Rainier or whatever. Um, or, you know, that's that's the the table that I, I had uh, and that, you know, 
had such wonderful objects on it. What whatever it is, it just it's it's a kind of habituation, but it's more than behavioral. It's again with one's whole body experience being able to be more present. And what what I like in your in your example is that at first in the dark um, there is a separation of me versus everything else which is threatening and then what you're describing is actually uh you know presence which is a process it's in process and it's a process of engagement and you're describing say touching something oh it's a ski pole and then there's a connection that's being made uh, so it's really a, a process of engaging. It, it is, it is. And it's a process of, of stepping outside the box, of taking the risk to stay with mm-hmm. that which appeared harrowing and overwhelming, but is now appearing in a different way. Mm-hmm. Something mm-hmm. The, the more, you're coming into the more of yeah. your being. And so, so that, that, that image of that dark cave uh, is uh, is fits that notion of at first you know dealing with anxiety it feels like the only way to do is somebody please get me out of here uh, and then with you know help with not you know not left to your own devices in something that's too overwhelming the possibility of gradually engaging with the world and yeah. discovering that despite the anxiety you know it actually can be a place where it's enjoyable to live in. Yeah, not not only survivable, but but thrivable. Thrivable. <laughs> <laughs> if I could use that word, make up that word. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah. And and that's where our healers, our therapists, or what Alice Miller calls helpful witnesses, might be a, a caring neighbor, a parent, uh or in the case of, uh, for example, Maya Angelou, who was raped at seven years old, it was the local library that provided those helpful witnesses to her, mm-hmm. reading people like Langston Hughes, who related directly to her life, her life, mm-hmm. but presented a model of somebody who not only survived some of the most degrading, you know, bigoted circumstances one could imagine as an African-American in America at that time yeah. uh, and the degradations, but but became an artist, became creative out of that and beyond that experience. Yeah, yeah. And so we want to be among these helpful witnesses. Yes, yes. And, and I think we, we want to cultivate more and more helpful witnesses. And the only way to do that in, in the longer term and in a, in a more substan- substantive way is for us to make a major shift in our, frankly, in our socioeconomic system, mm-hmm. our whole culture. Yeah. Uh, to shift from... Uh, the, the quick fix, instant result model for living, which is so seductive and, and so available now, especially because of our technology, our devices that allow that, to uh, what I would call a, a, a slow simmer 
sense of life, of the amazement of life, the, the preciousness of, of, of this you know, fleeting moment between two voids that we all have. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, thereby a, a focus on the things that, that really matter, that more deeply matter. Yeah. And how to support that in our culture. And I might, I might put it maybe in a slightly different way, see if we're... Yeah. Uh, but a shift from the immediate result or a shift from things have to be the way I imagine they should be to yes. paying, getting more in the process. And yes. either inner process, interpersonal process, discussion, expansion of the, so that the problem shifts yes. from that. Yes, yes. Yeah, and I think what you're saying is a, a more of a focus on the journey rather than the destination. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. to see the journey is is amazing. But to see, but to see the but to see that the journey itself shapes the destination. It's not it's not right. a distraction. Right. It's not oh I'm giving up on where I want to go. I'm giving up on the result. I'm giving up on say you know economic progress. But that actually the the process of it is the way to address it. That's great. Yeah, I, I love that because it's. It's a it's a very conscious journey, and it's it's uh, again a, a journey with one's whole body experience to the degree possible, so that the destination reflects that whole body experience, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Reflects something really core, something deeply meaningful. Yeah. 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 Mm. All based if you will yeah yeah in all its dimension all the dimensions of all right mm. so this feels like a good place to end but just want to check if you want to add something well to do do all you can to begin to take the mystery of our lives seriously. Uh, and by that, I mean, see if you can take more time to be in that unknowing place, to feel what it's like, sense what it's like, uh, allow um, other feelings, thoughts, associations to come up as you stay in that unknowing and uh, and stay with the process to the degree you can it, it, also seek a helpful witness if you can and help in the process a Virgil to you being Dante <laughs> in a sense um, yeah, it can be something great to share with a helpful witness, a friend, a lover, what have you. But uh, to discover the riches of uh, that which might feel very threatening and foreign at first, but can be a, a place 
or a person of incredible discovery for you and for what deeply matters about your life mm. and our lives together. Mm. And there are many paths to this, right? As we were describing before, mm. <laughs> certainly Buddhism could be part of that, meditation, depth therapy, or something that we didn't really talk about too much, but I've been very involved in these bridge building dialogues mm -hmm. between people of very different political and cultural backgrounds. Intimate one-on-one -on -one dialogues that I call the experiential democracy dialogue, mm -hmm. where it is really so much about cultivating greater presence to oneself and what comes up in oneself, as well as one's experience of the other. And it's, it's coming into that place where you're able to experience otherness less and less by your immediate reaction or the stereotype that you project on the other, but more um, in terms of their fuller humanity and what you can learn from each other, which I think is the first step toward achieving some kind of common ground or common purpose. We have to learn more about each other's humanity. And I realize it's not for everyone. <laughs> and, and some people, that's the last thing that they would want to do. They, they feel that they may need to make other changes first before they'd sit with somebody in, in those very intimate ways. Yeah. But for those who are willing, and I think there are more and more people willing and interested in finding ways of getting along with each other in, in a more uh, internal way, not just externally, behaviorally. Mm -hmm. Again, with her whole body experience, discovering more about each other. I think it can be a very valuable path for the, the next step in our democracy, really. Yeah. Versus just rearranging deck chairs on a Titanic. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Thanks, Kirk. This is part of the Active Pause podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to activepause.com.